Welcome to another edition of Where in the Folk. My name is Reed. Over here to my side is the lovely and luscious Cecil. Joining us in northern Kentucky is Tully. And our guest today is Darren Schaefer from the podcast known as the Cooper Vortex. And uh, we just wanted to say welcome and wanted to ask you where in the folk are you at right now? I'm in Greeley, Colorado right now. Oh, Colorado. I did not know that. So um, do you partake in recreations up there? <laughs> I work for the man, so of course I don't. Oh, okay. But uh, <laughs> maybe. Me either. <laughs> All right. So I'm so it's so awesome that you're on here because we're going to be talking about something that I've always kind of loved but never actually researched as much as I wanted to. Um, Mr. Schaefer, like we said, has the podcast, uh, Cooper Vortex, and he talks about Dan D.B. Cooper. And Mr. Schaefer, how did you get started, like, involved with D.B. Cooper to where you would dedicate a full, like, podcast to him? (laughs) Dedicate a full podcast to him. I like the way you put that. Yeah, I've done, I think, over 70 hours just on the topic of D.B. Cooper on the show. But how I got started with it was just growing up in the area. I heard about D.B. Cooper on Unsolved Mysteries when I was a little kid, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's a local story. That's pretty cool. And then I was living in Woodland, and it's just a a local story. I mean, I went to D.B. Cooper days in Ariel several times, and what really, really got me sucked into the vortex was... Uh, my wife gave me a copy of the book Skyjack by Jeffrey Gray. And I read that book, and in that book it talks about a gentleman who sort of stopped working with him because he's going to write his own book. So then I looked. That book was out. I bought that book, um, and it just sent me down the rabbit hole of D.B. Cooper. And, you know, that's what's so crazy. Like, most people think that this is just a plain cut and dry. This guy boarded a plane. He uh, got some money, hijacked the plane, he jumped off, so it, so it was rope. But there's so many twists and turns that come with this. For people that don't know exactly what it is, like, what to, what transpired to where this all started, like this, the legend that is D.B. Cooper? Set the scene, so to say. Well, the only D.B. Cooper story is on the plane. There is no D.B. Cooper story before, and there's no D.B. Cooper story after. So November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man in a business suit and raincoat walks into the Portland International Airport. He buys a one-way ticket to Seattle, pays in cash, 20 bucks, and gives his name as Dan Cooper. The ticket agent writes the name on the ticket. He's one of the last to board the plane. He sits in the back of the plane. Just before takeoff, he hands a stewardess a note. She assumed it was just another businessman hitting on her, so she puts the note in her purse. He sees that she does this and then reaches out and grabs her. Excuse me, miss, you might want to have a look at that note. I have a bomb. She then sits next to him. He (laughs) relays his instructions, cracks open the briefcase so she can have a look at it, and she described it as about eight red cylinders, some wiring, and a battery. I mean, what you would picture as like the stereotypical cartoon bomb is how it's been described. 
he wants $200,000 and four parachutes before they land in Seattle. They agree to his demands. They land in Seattle. He gets the four parachutes and the $200,000, and then they let the people off the plane. I think it's worth knowing that the people on the plane did not know they were being hijacked. They did not know this until they got off the plane and the FBI wanted to know all their names. (laughs) So on the ground, Cooper has some very specific flight instructions for them. He wants to be flown to Mexico City. He wants the landing gear down, the plane to fly no higher than 10,000 feet. The cabin will remain depressurized. The flaps set to 15 degrees and the plane to remain below 200 miles an hour. Uh, And he also wants to take off with the aft stairs down. He hijacks a Boeing 727, which has these aft stairs. So if the plane flew into small airports and whatnot that didn't have a ramp truck or anything, they could just lower the rear stairs and people could board and deplane that way. Well, that's kind of like a um, like a cargo plane in a way, right? Yeah, exactly. Except it's got stairs instead of a big giant ramp. Okay. And. The pilots are freaked out by this. They don't know if the plane can even fly with the stairs down. So they call into air traffic control. They have no idea either. Someone phones Boeing and Boeing confirms, yes, we've done some testing on that plane. That plane can fly with the rear stairs down. So the pilots tell them uh, they don't want to take off with the stairs down because the plane's full of fuel and they think it's too dangerous. Cooper says, fine, I'm not going to argue about it. I'll just lower the stairs in flight. They also inform him that under the conditions he asked for, they don't have enough fuel to make it to Mexico City. So they agreed on a refueling stop in Reno. The plane takes off about 7.50 p.m. um, with just Tina Mucklow, stewardess, in the back to assist him if he needed anything. After the plane takes off, he... Puts one of the parachutes on, gears up, tells Tina to head into the cockpit. They notice the stairs lowered from the cockpit. And in between 8.11 and 8.13, they feel some uh, oscillations and a pressure bump in the cabin and theorize that's when he jumped. The plane lands in Reno with the stairs down and Cooper is no longer on board. No one has seen or heard from him again. That would never happen today. That's so insane. No, and not like, only would it never happen today, but I've I talked to other people in the industry and other researchers about that period in time. You could actually walk onto the airplane without a ticket, and <laughs> the stewardess would come back and say, do you have a ticket? And if you said no, you could then buy your ticket en route. Wow. wow. Fun. And shortly after, you're talking about getting on planes and doing crazy shit. Um, Mc- Richard McCoy hijacks a plane about six months after using Cooper's MO and he walked onto the plane wearing a jumpsuit, his carrying his own parachute, a pistol and a hand grenade. <laughs> I thought that McCoy guy, I've actually heard about that one too. I thought he had a wingsuit for some reason. Was it just a standard sky jumping, like sky jumping suit or? Richard McCoy, yeah, he just had a, a standard skydiving suit, no wingsuit or anything. What a time to be alive, <laughs> for oh, sure. So you unloaded a lot of information right there, and and that's that's basically what happened. But there's a lot that goes into that. The bomb he had, did he? Do you think he got that from Wally Coyote? 
<laughs> it's very possible. I mean, it really is like what what she describes is straight from a cartoon. When I when I did a little research on it myself, that's exactly what I thought. I said this is like standard movie prop or Looney Tunes bomb style. There was a um, we we did an episode a while back about cartoon conspiracies, and um, we we have decided that Wiley Coyote actually owns stock in Acme Acme or whatever. So. Right. <laughs> so he's probably trying to build business. That's so, like so he was probably you. Technically, he's probably using road flares or something wrapped up, wouldn't he? Nobody that really would, that would be my guess. He took the bomb with him, so the only person who got a good look at it was stewardess Alice Hancock when he cracked it open. So there's no question that this guy probably had military experience of some sort, or at least, at the very least, pilot experience. I would say so, because if you consider the time period, they, they peg him as you know mid to late 40s. And if you think about dudes in their mid to late 40s in 1941, they were in World War II or Korea, for sure. Um, and then also, he gets his four parachutes, which is really two sets. He asks for a front, two front chutes and two back chutes, which is industry jargon for mains and reserves. And he gets a military set and a civilian set, and he chooses the military set over the civilian one. And I've heard people say that it shows he didn't know what he was doing because the modern civilian shoot is so much better and you can steer it. But I've talked to people with real skydiving experience who say, yeah, yeah, he was better off choosing the military one because the civilian shoot, he wouldn't have known if it would have been shredded on opening. That shoot was never designed to be jumped out of a jet with. Yeah. And and like, and we've had a we've had this argument before. Um, so this proves that you can jump out of a flying jet. So there you go, Tully. <laughs> well, I, I never said that. There's a but, limited number of jets you can actually jump out of. Well, um, yeah. If you if you were to try to jump out of the side door, there's no way. Oh uh, yeah, I guess. I think I can if do it. I, I think. <laughs> well, you'd have to, you'd have to have a depressurized cabin yeah. to start with. So so he has this bomb, and I I love the fact that he gives this letter to this lady, and she's probably has that happen all the time because I know when I was a young man, I'd always slip a little letter or something to the bar tender or something, you know, <laughs> whether whoever it may be, and they never read it, so I can get where she was coming from. <laughs> 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 yeah another interesting thing is she she was really freaked out by it obviously so uh another stewardess actually sort of took over the situation tina mucklow took the situation over and ended up sitting next to cooper because alice was sort of losing it and one of my favorite parts about the story is you know she ends up sitting next to him for five hours and actually lit his cigarettes for him I mean, what a what a different time. You're hijacking the plane, and the gal working there sits next to you and lights your cigarettes for you. It's just that's a so totally different. different time. That is a totally different. Do you time. think anyone on that plane could have been an implant, like someone assisting him? No. So I absolutely hate that theory. I'm glad you asked that question, Tully. <laughs> so 
there are two theories that anyone who has looked into this case for some amount of time is immediately going to put down. And one of them is crew involvement. Uh, you had seven people on that working on that plane that day. Uh, all of them saw this dude. And the idea that these people with great jobs would risk it to split some of this money up, I just don't see it as, as possible at all. Also, one of Tina's ex-husbands reported to Bruce Smith that they believed the FBI was following them for a period of time after the skyjacking. So, I mean, that's something the FBI has to look into if maybe one of those people has some sort of or any involvement. But in all my research, I've come across zero evidence there was any involvement from the crew. So do you the think- other theory Sorry. that I hate is that he never existed, that he was made up by the crew or the government or the airline to change airline regulation. That's not true either. People saw him at the airport. People saw him on the plane. He definitely existed. So do you think the two parachutes were just so that he could choose between one or the other? I think he got two different types of parachutes because they didn't know how to get parachutes quickly. It wasn't like it is today where there are, you know, 10 different drop zones within 20 miles of every major city. I think it was difficult. And they thought, where the hell are we going to get these parachutes? So they just got a mishmash of them. And actually, the reserve that Cooper jumped with is believed to have been inoperable. It was a, a training parachute that was meant for classroom demonstrations. Oh, wow. That's that's heavy right there because the fact that he never turned up again and he jumped out of this moving plane, maybe the main chute did fail and that one didn't work either. It was just a dummy training chute. Yeah, that's crazy. It's, it's possible, but the if you believe that Cooper died in the jump, which is totally possible, I'm not saying that he didn't, I would recommend Marty Andrade's book, Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead. He does such a good job in that book demonstrating how easy it is to survive jumping out of an airplane. He compared World War II ejections um, and found that 90% or 95% of the dudes that jumped out of planes with parachutes survived. And we're talking dudes that are jumping from planes that have been shot down over ground they don't know where they're landing, possibly at a low elevation, the plane out of control. And they had a 95% survival ratio. And a lot of those dudes maybe had one practice jump, but most of them probably only had classroom training on how to parachute. And reading that just makes me believe that Cooper lived. They were probably hauling ass too when they jumped out in World War II, more than likely. So they probably going a lot faster. Now, there's a little film I watched that says that he did die, and it's called Without a Paddle. Have you seen that? I have seen that documentary. Do you think Burt Reynolds was involved in any way? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to think so, but I just haven't seen any evidence for it. So, (laughs) I don't know, just like Cecil, like, I'm not an expert in any way, but didn't, didn't they find some of the money? They did. Uh, February of 1980, 
an eight-year-old boy just picnicking on the, the shores of the Columbia River outside Vancouver Lake, um, literally brushed some sand aside with his arm and uncovered this stack of deteriorating cash. And they discovered it, it belonged to Cooper. The biggest problem with that money find, though, is it's 20 miles west of where people believe he jumped. So it's outside of the flight path. It's outside where the wind would have taken him. There isn't any logical way the money could have flown down streams or rivers to get to where it was found. So it's it's baffling. I mean, how there's really no good explanation for how the money got there. It only adds more questions to the case than it provides answers. How deteriorated was it? This one, You said 1980. That would be like nine years later. Was yeah, it like nine pretty years badly later? deteriorated. You can look it up online. Um, the bills were in real rough shape, and some of them sold at auction in like 2014 or something like that. The FBI actually gave half the money back to the Ingram family after they turned it into the FBI. Was there any um, any investigation into them, like like you know, suspecting maybe? That he did that on purpose or I'm sure there was some investigation into the Ingram family. Uh, I haven't seen a lot in the FBI's 302s about that, but there was a book, the last master outlaw by uh, Tom Colbert who theorized that uh, the Ingram family, Brian Ingram's father knew a guy who knew a guy who planted the money there. Um, it's, it's a theory that I'm not, particularly fond of these were marked bills too were they not like did they, they ever weren't they weren't marked but they but were sequential right they weren't sequential either what they had was and this is an odd detail see first bank in seattle had two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that the fbi had already recorded all of the serial numbers on and that money was set aside to be used for ransoms essentially or robbery or something like that. I don't I don't know why they would do that. And so it's interesting that Cooper's request is inside this magical amount of money they have just sitting for this occasion. That is insane. Like it's almost like he knew exactly what it was um, that he needed. He he seemed to be pretty heavily trained. Um, I know this is probably not a popular theory, or it could be. Um, do you think that this might have been like one of the first, like, what they call false flag thing. Like, maybe the CIA or something was involved in this or something. Because, like, it's strange that he would know the exact amount of money. Not exact, but pretty close to what they have ready for ransom in this area. And seem to be well-trained. Or he might have, I don't know, he might work for the plane company or something. Even I've got two good CIA theories for you. All right. The first is... The CIA was using 727s uh, in the Vietnam area, area as test planes for dropping troops and gear because visually it looks like a commercial jetliner, but they can drop stuff out of the back. So the CIA knew that the 727 could be jumped from, you could drop gear from it, and pilots and civilians, people who worked for Boeing and airports and airlines, they didn't know that. So that's interesting. Was this guy involved with the CIA doing that? 
in Vietnam, and that's how he knew the plane could be jumped from. The other CIA theory, which I really enjoy, is my pal Nat LaFouke wrote a book about E. Howard Hunt potentially being D.B. Cooper. Uh, from the Watergate scandal, if you... My favorite picture of him is when he's on trial for Watergate, he's wearing sunglasses, which Cooper donned sunglasses during his entire hijacking. So that's a detail I really like. And while that theory is pretty wild, uh, if you read Nat's book, I want to say it's D.B. Cooper Exposed. Uh, Forgive me, Nat. I can't remember the name of the book. But it's actually a decent theory. And sort of presents it as it's possible there's some evidence for E. Howard Hunt. He kind of wanted to be a real-life James Bond character. He fits the description. He certainly had the ability to plan and execute something like this. And he was already up to shenanigans for Nixon already. Uh, He did that break-in in California. I want to say it was like a psychiatry office or something like that. Um, and then Watergate. So and that's what we know about. So you said they put uh, D.B. Cooper to be around his mid-40s, maybe early 40s? Yeah, I would. The official report says mid to late 40s, but uh, witnesses put him anywhere between 40 and 55. Well, hmm. That's how it could have been him. I mean, yeah, he kind of looks like the composite in a way, except. I mean, back then, everybody kind of looked like that, though, didn't they? <laughs> like everybody that's, to... that's exactly right. I made a joke on my show that the the sketches are so generic, and men all had a pretty similar look in, in 1971, especially middle-aged men. So I made the joke, hey, if you find a picture of your grandpa, you could match it to one of the two sketches. And a fan sent me this email, hey, you're totally right. Here's a picture of my grandpa. He was D.B. Cooper. <laughs> have there ever been um or has there ever been anyone that's admitted to be in db cooper great question again totally fantastic <laughs> yes there have been anywhere between dozens and over 900 people that have confessed to doing this crime i think that if you put Tolly in a suit and a tie and shave that beard he'd, he'd <laughs> We could we could work it up to make him look that way. I think totally my dumbness. <laughs> yeah, but there's there've been several deathbed confessions or someone telling their friends or family that they're the ones who have done this. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of times those people go on essentially a quest to prove that their friend or their dad or their uncle or their brother was Cooper, which is why I've decided on my deathbed to make some wild claims to my family so they can spend the rest of their lives pursuing it. (laughs) I had a perfect, we, we just passed April fool's day and um, this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I just want to say this. I had the perfect ideal for a prank to pull on my wife. I was going to be like, I'm running down to the store to get some cigarettes. and I wasn't going to come back for like a week. (laughs) (laughs) see that would have got all of us because she would have been blowing our phones up like have you seen cecil and when i came back i was going to act like it only been like 10 minutes i'm like oh damn i forgot the cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so here's one thing I wanted to ask about on this. So I know that after they left Seattle and they were headed to Reno, they actually had some uh, Air Force planes following, shadowing the, the plane he was on, correct? They did. They had two, I think they were Huey helicopters and two F-106 jets. I'm I'm not an expert on planes, so if I mess that up, forgive me. But I had um, this ultra badass dude on my show named Matt Lamadou, and he was a Navy SEAL. He was in the PJs. He was a smoke jumper, all-around badass. And he said one of the interesting things about the speed Cooper demanded the plane be flown at was faster than the helicopters could fly and right at the stall speed of those jets. So yeah, and I was I was thinking about that because uh, that was that was exactly where I was going to go because that's what kept them from spotting him if he did jump was the Hueys could not keep up with it and and the, 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 and the jets they could only go by maybe at train you know at perpendicular uh, junctions to actually see the plane. Because they couldn't go that slow. Wow. This guy. Yeah, I talked to, a, I think he was an F-15 pilot. And he said what they would have been doing is either throttling up and slamming on the brakes near the jet to kind of get a look at it. And then repeating that over and over. Or um, making these sweeping wide S turns around the plane to keep an eye on it. But even then, he had the lights in the plane turned off. And he's wearing black. It's at night. There's cloud cover and it's raining. Right. So even if they could catch a glimpse of him, it, it would have they only been for a second. Yeah, they would have been right up on him at the perfect time to catch him jumping. So so there's no doubt that this person had is it aeronautical experience. Is that what it is? I what? would say so, yeah. Well, so, even, even the... The jump itself, so those helicopters would eventually catch up. So I would think that he is probably an expert jumper, and is probably pulling parachute at last second, at last possible second to get to the ground fast as he can. Wow, man, this guy was a fucking CIA plant. <laughs> That's what he was. He like, and and just she was so you know, on, man. Cecil thinks I'm in the CIA. I do think that reads in the CIA. The reason being, he's he's college educated, which a lot of people are, and he's been to Washington D.C. twice. So that's why I'm solid in case. <laughs> solid, solid. Well, we we don't we don't listen to Cecil a ton because he he literally doesn't think birds are real. I think they're real that you can t- reach out and touch them, but they're not like. Us. They're not like they're not biological. They're not biological in a way. They're like uh, manufactured by the Venerians to monitor the matrix that we live in. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but going our back consensus. To, <laughs> okay. But going back to this. <laughs> so, this there's no doubt that this person. I mean, there's no way that somebody that worked at the Boeing company or anybody else could just do their research. And do this. Like, this had what, to be... What kind of research could you do in 71? Did your local library have a Boeing 727-800 manual? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, 
I don't know how you would have known that. The pilots didn't know that. The pilots were concerned that the plane would not be able to fly with the stairs down. You can get those booklets at the Congre- Congressional Library See, in exactly. Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> Even then, um, I'm not sure if it says in there that you could jump off the back stairs or even if it says in there that the stairs could be or the plane can fly with the stairs down. Well, if that was Vietnam related, that was probably classified. Operations. I would would think so. You said that whenever they they were in the flight, that was when he jumped, that there was a drop like a pressure spike. And that's when they assume he jumped, right? Yeah, so the reason that there is a guess as to where Cooper landed is the pilots felt some oscillations that required them to correct course and then felt a pressure bump in the plane. And they theorized that that pressure bump was from Cooper standing on the rear stairs and the weight held them down a little bit. He jumps off and then the stairs bounce back up. And it kind of pushed pressure back into the plane. So to test that theory, they took the exact same plane at the exact same altitude and conditions Cooper demanded, flew it out over the Pacific Ocean, and pushed a 200-pound weight off the back to see if it would replicate the results. And it did. So they decided, okay, this is where Cooper jumped. Wow. What is a pressure bump? Does it just kind of knock the plane out of whack? No, I think it was just because the cabin was depressurized when those stairs popped back up, um, kind of like if you're in a soundproof room or something and someone slams the door, you can feel the pressure in the room change. I was going to say, if I would have jumped off of it, sent that damn thing to the ground, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For for all of our... uh, our redneck fans out there, it was probably uh, the equivalent of uh, draft bumping in NASCAR. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I'm, I don't know what that NASCAR. is. NASCAR. <laughs> I had to relate it somehow to those guys. I don't so. like anything that has NAS in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, wasn't there, and I think we, we talked about this a little bit, maybe this week, Cecil, but wasn't there an episode you did on a on a guy that they think was DB Cooper? Um, the guy who's responsible for every conspiracy ever made. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the the support for the DB Cooper is not there, but I strongly believe he's the Zodiac killer. Is uh the Ed Edwards thing? Do you Ed Edwards? I did an episode on Ed Edwards. Um, I went to. Great Falls, Montana, and met up with John, I can't remember his name, but he wrote the book on Ed Edwards. Oh, John Cameron. Yeah, John Cameron. John Cameron, Cameron, that's right. Thank you. I'm sorry, John. Yeah, I went to Great Falls and met up with John Cameron and uh, had him on the show. Wow. Ed Edwards is a very, very fascinating story. The evidence for him being D.B. Cooper, though, I, I think is... Very weak. No, I think it's weak for D.B. Cooper, but uh, 100% believe he was a Zodiac killer. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm pretty much on board with him on the Zodiac killer thing, too. So. Be, just because of the fact of, um, you know, that the last murder, the Paul Shaftner murder or whatever, he was picked up at the Ants Bar, 
And that guy was killed like a block from the, ha- the cousin's house. That's just crazy. But we'll move on past that. We already did that episode. That's another. Well, I've done. <laughs> I can I can do you one better. I've done four episodes on. It's essentially one guy that commits all the unsolved crimes. I did one with Dr. David Gold on Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. He oh, believes wow. that Frank Morris is D.B. Cooper. And then I did one. On Jack Terrence, who is the this gal Harriet Suchet believes that he's the Zodiac and D.B. Cooper and all these other crimes. And then, oh, the other one I did was uh, with Caroline Stanislaw, who believes her father was the Zodiac, the Atlanta child killer, and D.B. Cooper. That's, that's so doing a lot. Yeah, and that that's the same that's the same thing they think Ed Edwards was involved with, like pretty much all those too. Well, yeah, in, in all four of those cases, those people believe they committed all of the unsolved crimes. I mean, Dr. David Gold told me uh, that Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers have killed over 25,000 people. Wow. Good God, That's putting in work. <laughs> well, like, I think when you did the Ed Edwards stuff, like, did I mean, it was crazy. It, it went from D.B. Cooper to, like, John Bonet Ramsey. I mean, it's all Teresa over the Hallback board. even. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Peterson. Like, and and we didn't even cover all of it. Like, the list was so staggering. And I did research for like three weeks. So I was like, I got to quit doing this. I don't see how John Cameron <laughs> does it. But back to this. Um. So, you've done more. You probably done more research than a lot of people. Even like people that consider themselves DB Cooper scholars. Who do you think probably did it? I have no idea. Oh, I, I really have no idea. I am less confident in what I know about the case now than I was five years ago. Uh, and I think a lot of the people who have put a lot of real time into this that aren't suspect peddlers uh, feel the same way. I mean, I, I just I don't know. It's a Pandora's box. Now, yeah, this might not have any affiliation with it, and I don't mean to offend anybody. I'm already offended. <laughs> not even started. Go ahead. The Patterson Gremlin footage came out in 1967 in upstate New York. <laughs> Do you think that when D.B. Cooper landed on the ground, he was attacked by Bigfoot? Well, there is a movie called Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. Really? I would highly recommend you guys watch it. <laughs> It's done by a, a gentleman, I think his name's David Decato, but it's a certain type of genre of film. The film's called Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. 98% of the movie is shirtless guys working out. That sounds like my type of movie. <laughs> it's right it's a weird movie. I would definitely recommend you guys give it a watch. I it was on Amazon Prime a while ago. I'm not sure where it is now. But. Yeah, we were we were texting back and forth about about this episode, and I'm like, I think the the popular theory needs to be that DB Cooper was an interdimensional being. <laughs> <laughs> well, that theory Disney's presenting that, aren't they? Aren't they doing a Loki thing where he's DB Cooper? Oh yeah, yes. yeah. The trailer for Loki, he is. In a what appears to be a mock version of Northwest Orion Airlines, um, the outfits are correct, and then he jumps out of the back of the plane and disappears in air. 
My only problem with that, though, is he's shown jumping from the plane in daylight. What the hell? You gotta make it real. They got the money. (laughs) Yeah, the other... uh, The big D.B. Cooper film with uh, Treat Williams and Robert Duvall in pursuit of D.B. Cooper, uh, he jumps out of the plane in, like, the first five minutes in the daylight again. And then the rest of the movie, he just, like, drinks beer in a pickup truck, making out with some chick while Robert Duvall chases him. Um, Not much D.B. Cooper content in that movie either. And what's so crazy to me is, like, they had all these serial numbers and everything, but nothing ever turned up in rotation. And $200,000 back in 1971 was a lot of money. That would be, like, oh, I know, like, one point two five million today. And do you think that there's a chance that this person might have just done it for a thrill? If, if it wasn't CIA-related, because my what I think personally, which I'm – this is based on no strong research, nothing. I think it was CIA testing, you know, what hijacks, how they could, like, properly hijack stuff. I've got, are you ready for this? Oh, yes. It's time. Uncle Dave's <laughs> crazy conspiracy theory. Uncle Dave's crazy conspiracies. <laughs> Here it is. All right. So, Frank Abagnale Jr. From the movie Catch Me If You Can, real-life person, was a counterfeiter. He worked for the FBI after he got caught on counterfeiting. He was well-versed in airplanes because that's how he did most of his jet-setting was posing as an airline pilot. He had knowledge of the planes He was working for the FBI to test out theories for hijacking. It was Frank Abagnale Jr. Uncle Dave's crazy conspiracies. There you go. All right. Sorry Uh, to disappoint you, but it's not the first time I've heard that. (laughs) Really? Well, I'm funny. That came off the top of my head. I have to do this every episode. It's not a bad theory. And one of the things I like the most about that is he was famously charming. And, you know, could walk into a room where people didn't like him. It was already confrontational. And he walks out. He swindled everyone in the room. And they're happy about it. And what D.B. Cooper did, you know, Tina Mucklow said immediately after that he was never rude. And he was polite and friendly were the words she used to describe him immediately after the hijacking. Now, it's, you don't hear about there was a bank robbery and then they put the mic in front of the teller's face and she goes, yeah, he was so kind and friendly and was never rude. Um, but that's what they had to say about Cooper right after he you know, was like, give me this money or I'll blow this plane up. <laughs> that's crazy. I hate to blow a hole in the theory of Frank Abigail. Abigail. <laughs> but he would only been like 23 years old when this happened. Right, that is yep. the problem with that. I let, mean, let me live my, my crazy conspiracy theories, okay? <laughs> it could have been. Maybe he's wearing makeup or something. Yeah, the, uh, there are two popular suspects that age just puts them out right away immediately for me. And that's Robert Rackstraw and, and Richard McCoy. They were, I want to say, 27 and 28 at the time of the hijacking. And, 
Tina Mucklow is 22 and sat next to him for five hours and puts his age mid to late 40s. You cannot tell me that a 22-year-old girl is going to be off on the age of somebody by 20 years after sitting next to him for so long. I just, I don't see any way Cooper could be in his 20s. I don't know. I've met some people who are pretty horrible at telling people's age. That's true. But usually it's like the opposite. Like they they gauge them older. They always tell me I look like I'm 13. (laughs) Right. You know, if you're a 22-year-old gal, a 28-year-old gal, a 28-year-old dude isn't much older than you. So you would notice that. This guy, you know, he's five or ten years older than me at most. But she put his age at mid to late 40s, which, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a bold, daring crime for sure. But extra bold and daring for a dude of that age. Um, well, typically, I, these crazy crimes are committed by young men who are crazy. Well, I will say, you know, Cecil mentioned his upbringing earlier in his middle school years. When Cecil was 23, he could have been pegged for 40. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost 40 now, and I look exactly like I did back then, except I was... Not skinny, but I was skinnier than I am now. I didn't weigh 380 pounds. I weighed like 320. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds felt. (laughs) But I don't know. This was such a good... The money. Where's the money? That's that's my thing. Like, it seems like if this wasn't the CIA plant, they just did it for fun. Like, where'd the money go? Where did the money go? That's a great question. I had, I was lucky to have this gentleman, Arthur Friedberg, on my show. And he is uh, a numismatist, which was a term I learned um, (laughs) researching him, which is somebody who is a professional on the history and accuracy of money. And He literally wrote the book on U.S. paper currency. It's called U.S. Paper Currency by Arthur Friedberg. The the way that you determine how uh, collectible your bills are, um, they use what's called the Friedberg system, which his father created. So this guy, I mean, he knows everything about money in the United States. And I was lucky to have him on my show. Although I was disappointed in what he had to say because I asked him, could Cooper have spent that money? And I always fantasized about Cooper sitting on the beach, listening to news broadcasts about D.B. Cooper and having a good time. And he said there's no way that he could have spent that money because once it entered circulation, it's in for roughly the average is about seven years. And once it's distributed, the odds that even one of those bills would have been flagged in a suspicious transaction, in his opinion, was 100%. So the fact that... Even in the 70s? Even in the 70s. Because if you bought a car with cash or you gave your down payment for your home in cash, um, you deposited $7,000 into your bank account, those transactions were flagged and they would just take a cursory look at the money to see if there were any issues and i used to think that it wouldn't have been nearly impossible to find that money but arthur 
told me how easy it would have been for tellers to catch that and how savvy they are because they Cooper got a specific type of bill. Most of them were 1963 or 69 series a bills. And a lot of them had a star in the serial number. There was a couple flags where if you knew what you were looking for, it would have been easy to find. So I think especially in the Pacific Northwest and around there, tellers were looking for those bills. So I don't believe any of the money was ever spent. Did he do it because he just wanted the money or to prove that he was a badass? I don't know. I I don't know what happened to the money. I thought until eight months ago that he spent most of it, but experts tell me he didn't. So it was easy for him to track it and everything. I get that in America. Do you, this kind of happened, you know, not too far from the Canadian border. Do you think there's a chance he might dipped over there and like washed it in Canada or something? Certainly. But what Arthur pointed out to me is that even if you spend money in other countries, those countries send the money back to America because the bills age. Oh. So if the if the bills deteriorate to nothing in Canada, then you're screwed. So banks do send that money back to the states. Here's so another. there's another way that that money would have been found and flagged. Here's another theory. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> what if he had Pablo Escobar launder the money? Because they say that just, Pablo had bundles of money buried all over Colombia that were never found. Maybe that's who he got to wash it, and that's one of the bags that they buried in the jungle that was never found. Yeah, maybe that's the money that Pablo used to to, to <laughs> form think, his family that lot. I don't, I don't think <laughs> yep, that was Pablo's startup seed money. I don't think Pablo was in full swing back then. <laughs> There's actually I wanted to say he's Colombian. Uh one of the DB Cooper suspects is Frederick Hanneman who committed a similar hijacking after after Cooper. Do countries that we're not allies with also do that? I'm just thinking, like, what if what if he went to a country that like we're not friends with? Well, they probably uh, want honored the money. Uh, American probably, money talks wherever you go. Now it does, but in the 70s we were probably still under the gold standard before we went under the oil standard, right? But but even then, that money comes back to the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's strange, man. I mean, it's so crazy that this money just didn't, it just disappeared. Like, I don't get it, man. Like, do you think it would still flag today? I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to say yes, it would still flag today. Although it's an old style 20 bill. So it would look out of place. How many of the old style 20s do you guys see? I I I see zero. I never see money at all. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. It's so gangster. Like, like he just jumps out with two hundred thousand dollars, and to our knowledge, if he lived, he just like hey, threw it down and walked away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, God. I mean, that's one of the things that is so crazy about this is that there is no story before he got on the plane, and none. After he just shows up out of nowhere and went back to nowhere immediately after this. 
And D.B. Cooper obviously wasn't his real name. I mean, <laughs> no, it wasn't even the name he gave when he got on the plane. He gave us the name Dan Cooper, which I'll get to in a second. But it becomes D.B. Cooper because they get everyone off the plane. The one name on the flight manifest that didn't get off is Dan Cooper. It goes out over the AP, and there was a felon living in Portland who went by D.B. Cooper, and I assume it's, you know, probably one of the first people that got a knock on his door. Hey, uh, did you skyjack this plane? <laughs> and Force obviously up. it wasn't him, but somehow through some mix-up, it went out to the press as D.B. Cooper. And I think the FBI sort of enjoyed that because when people confessed and admitted to being D.B. Cooper, they knew that that wasn't even the name he gave. The name Dan Cooper, however, is something I'm pretty interested in because there was a Franco-Belgian comic book that went by Dan Cooper. And Dan Cooper was a Canadian Royal Air Force test pilot and badass. There are pictures of him in the comic book jumping out of a blowing a, of an exploding passenger jet. Um, it's just there's a lot of crazy coincidences. And. When he buys his ticket, did he give the name Dan Cooper as an homage to that comic book? I've always said, you know, if I robbed a train and then escaped by shooting webs out of my hands and my ticket for the train was Peter Parker, that's more than a coincidence. <laughs> kind of like how Frank Abagnale <laughs> used the name uh, Barry Allen. What a coincidence. Another comic book guy. And Frank Abbey and Frank did go to Europe, didn't he? <laughs> my but, theory's gaining uh, it's, it's gaining some traction here. But my thing my thing is, if I was to rob a bank whenever I was leaving, I'd, I'd do that old uh, Babyface Wallace thing, like, Jason saves and David Reed withdraws. <laughs> I'd give shoot, my name, shoot my name in the walls. <laughs> so this comic book, did it precede this, or was it based on it? It did. Quite a while. I want to say his first appearance was in like 55. 55. What war was going on in 55? Uh, that was. Yeah, it would have just ended. Oh. So more than likely this person was stationed in Belgium, right? I've seen it reproduced um, in French speaking Canada and I've seen it um, in Spanish for Mexican and Central American markets as well. This guy was a time traveler. <laughs> I wonder if this was a fraternity initiation for time travelers. <laughs> like, that's probably the thing. They're like, you got to go back and hijack this plane and bring us back $200,000. <laughs> it's probably like somebody in like 2100 and like that money's worth a lot because everything's digital now. <laughs> <laughs> that's insane, man. Like, this... That is the beautiful thing about D.B. Cooper. These, <laughs> the the theories can just go everywhere. I'm trying my best to when we. Oh end yeah, this there's so many theories and suspects. It, one of the reasons I started the show was because whether or not some of these suspects are Cooper, just led the most fascinating and interesting lives. One of my first episodes was about Barb Dayton, who confessed to her friends of the Foremans about the hijacking. And Barb Dayton was the first person in Washington state to get gender reassignment surgery. She was born Robert Dayton, 
transitioned in 1969 and her life's not going so great. She's sort of miserable. She decides she wants to prove to herself that she's still a badass dude. So she dresses back up like a man, commits the hijacking, and then throws the money in the garbage because it was about doing the act and not necessarily about the money. And then returned to her life as a woman. And she told the foremans, which I loved, they never found D.B. Cooper because they were looking for a man. Wow. That That's, like I said, that's the beautiful thing about this subject. It's, it's just... Yeah, I think that like just a, melted my brain. It, like <laughs> it blew up into a million particles, and you don't know which one to chase. But they're all interesting. Well, I think... pictures of her, I mean... Yeah. I could... Yeah, that's possible, huh? She's a better suspect than most. I mean, I I really like Barb Dayton. If I could pick, you know, if I had a magic power where I got to pick which suspect was D.B. Cooper, I might pick Barb Dayton just because it's like the most Portland story ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's intense. Were they were they the first person in Washington to get a reassignment, or were like or were they like one of the first people ever? I I only am aware of one of the first people in Washington State, which you know, with that surgery, I'm not sure I want to be the pioneer. Yeah, that's what I was getting ready to say. That would be like the worst case scenario. Like, I don't ever want to be the first for anything. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> like just testing very, experimental parachutes. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Well, I'm glad everything worked out for her. I hope I she think, ended up with a lot of money that she just looked at, apparently, and stared at out the window. <laughs> I think the way that the way that you're doing it is the way it should be done. Oh yeah, for sure. This is. I'm I'm really scared that this is going to take me down a strong rabbit hole for the next couple of months. <laughs> well, they they call it the vortex because once you enter, you can never leave. And I mean. In my experience, it's been pretty true. The only people I've known that have dipped their toe in the D.V. Cooper pool and escaped really are Jeffrey Gray, who wrote Skyjack, and then a gentleman, I'll call him Sluggo, who was super into it and then one day just said, no more, I'm out, and never talk to me about D.V. Cooper again. Uh, Everyone else has died. They're a way out. You get to have fun with it, though, and... It seems like a lot of people come in it with an objective view on, you know, like they, they know who it is, right? Yeah, there are two different camps. There are your suspect peddlers who, hey, I know for sure that Henry Tully was D.B. Cooper, 100%, and I'm going to tell everyone about it. And then the other camp is people who are researching the case without a suspect in mind. And I'm still not opposed to the thought that Tully might be D.B. Cooper because, I mean, right now, how old are you, 30? So in, like, <laughs> other 11 years, is to say you don't time travel. I mean, kind of look like this guy Tully in a way. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have enough pizza experience to jump out of a plane, dude. How tall was D.B. Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> About 5'8", I think. Oh, so. uh, well, that rules Tully out. <laughs> Tully's 5'3". <laughs> no is there any strong like strong like strong suspects like i i read one thing 
about a Ted Braden. Ted Braden is a really good suspect. My friend Drew Beeson has a book out uh, called The Paratrooper of Fortune, which I would highly recommend. It's just about Ted Braden. He did some incredible research on that and, you know, discovered quite a few things that weren't really known to other G.B. Cooper researchers. So I really appreciate his work on that. And Ted Braden really, really fits. He was this all-around Special Forces badass. He's the right age. He is the type of guy who has the training and experience to plan and execute something like this. And the personality to do it. Um, Because a lot of your Special Forces guys afterward... You ask them, hey, would you pull something like this on American soil? All of them, no, hell no, never. But Braden was a little bit more loosey-goosey with his morals than some of these other dudes. He actually was arrested in the Congo after going AWOL on Vietnam. When he was arrested in the Congo, he was working as a mercenary for hire, which is a bad look. So he gets shipped off to Fort Dix in the United States. And I've spoken to the corrections officer. I, I'm not sure what the military title would be for it. And he told me that when Braden got there, they put Braden in the cell and he walks by the cell. Braden's in his dress clothes with his shoes shined in a belt buckle, which would never be allowed there. He was watching a TV, which people were not allowed to have there. And he said to me, Hell, I didn't even have one in my room at the time, (laughs) which was funny. And he was smoking a wood-tipped cigar, which would have been not not only not allowed, but he was wondering how did he get that in there. And so he said to me that he knew right away, whatever is going on with this guy is above my pay grade. And they end up letting Braden out because on his scheduled court date, the court was busy. So they just let him out. Um, Yeah, and he lives kind of an interesting, mysterious life. He gets, uh, Drew discovered this, he's pulled over for a DUI at like 72, 73 years old (laughs) and is combative with the officer, refuses to provide identification, insurance. His vehicle is unregistered. And it's like, who does that at that age? A fucking rebel. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got the got. I can only imagine these brass balls. Hank, Hank the Third or something. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, an article in uh, Ramparts magazine from like 1965, where Braden is essentially advertising himself as a as a soldier or mercenary for hire, and talks about his skill set and, and what he's done. So he was clearly a guy who knew that he was a badass and he'll do it for you if you have enough money. The only thing against Braden is his height. Braden was like five foot eight, I believe, or five foot seven. Um, And they have Cooper at like five, nine to six foot. I don't know how much importance I put on height. Um, When you're sitting in a plane, look behind you and guess the guy's height. It's tough. I've done it many times. Just yeah. thinking while we're all seated, I try and guess how tall is that guy, that guy, and that guy. 
And then when we get off the plane, it's like, oh, my guesses weren't that accurate. <laughs> well, that's insane. Like, so this Ted Braden, he, this is the, the list I'm looking at too. Like the list I had pulled up a few minutes ago, I seen like a John list on here. I know him because he killed his family and everything. Um, there's like a bunch John of John list. I did an episode on John list with, uh, Joe Sharkey, who wrote a great book about him. Um, the only evidence for John List being D.B. Cooper is that John List disappeared about four weeks before the hijacking and would have needed money and looks exactly like the sketch. The only but, problem is John List couldn't see without his glasses and he was not athletic at all and then admitted to murdering his entire family um, <laughs> but not being D.B. Cooper. So if you're going to go down for murdering your family <laughs> – <laughs> you might as well say, oh, yeah, I did that, too, right. but he, yeah. he didn't. Yeah, <laughs> but I will say this. Thing. As a family man, I really admire John List. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Oh, shoot, that's, great. That, that's like something you would say, Cecil. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I completely agree. I think hot is a lot easier to mistake than age. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, the age thing, too. Like, back then, people coming back from war and stuff, stress puts a lot of age on your face, too. But he also was a very calm and collected guy, so... Maybe he didn't get stressed out easy. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. A lot of this doesn't. It's, well, there's it's, like pictures of my dad from back then, and I swear to God, in those pictures, he still looks older than me. Yeah, and you know, back then men were men too, so they probably worked a lot harder and stuff. Like we don't. I, I work at a uh, sit-down job. I'm a professional ass sitter as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and not to mention people were smoking all day every day nah, i mean dude. he he smoked like eight cigarettes on the plane in five hours i think i smoked eight sitting right here yeah i think i have too. <laughs> <laughs> just looking for that light son that's what i'm pushing toward <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded like this is something that i always wanted to look into but now i'm glad i didn't because <laughs> i'm somebody that gets too involved he is on the edge of the vortex right now yeah. we may have to pull him back i'm lo i'm sitting here reading right now <laughs> on the edge of a vortex of a lot of stuff <laughs> yes there's a uh, there's another interesting suspect who i've been fascinated with uh in the last two years or so and that's uh, William or Wolfgang Gossett. He ran a paranormal radio show in Salt Lake City. He performed exorcisms. He was a wilderness survival expert. He had military experience. Uh, he was an insane gambler um, and had a bunch of lady problems. He confessed to two of his adult sons that he was D.B. Cooper, one of which on their 21st birthday um, he told his sons that he put the money in a safety deposit box in Vancouver, Canada. He also, if you guys are aware of Clyde Lewis, he was Clyde Lewis's mentor and miraculously um, predicted a type of cancer that Clyde Lewis would have. 
Um, very, very interesting dude who a lot of people believe was Cooper. I'm looking at a picture of the William Gossett right now with, next to two composites. One of them, D.B. Cooper's like thin-faced, and the other one, he's got like a squared-off jaw, but he looks like both of them, strangely. Is <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. It's like and the two sketches is, is interesting because the, the skinnier sketch you're referring to is commonly known as the Bing Crosby sketch, was the first one that came out. And I think the FBI wasn't happy with it. I think Florence Schaffner, the stewardess, wasn't happy with it. So they did a revised sketch, and that's the one where he has more of a squared-off jaw, and he has a little bit more olive tone to his skin because Cooper's never described as white. They described him as olive skin or swarthy or a medium complexion. That's wild. He, I mean, but again, the the whole thing that he looks like him just you can't really hold any weight to it because everybody looks like him. Like it's insane. Yeah, I mean, all of the suspects they do that side by side comparison against the sketch, and they all look great. <laughs> I don't know what to think about this, man. <laughs> this is, I think this is the one that's broke my brain, honestly, like completely. I've laid in bed awake at night. Because there's something about this case that's bugging me. Or somebody reached out to me and I can't stop thinking about it. I've fantasized about not doing this show anymore. I mean, why am I why am I spending my time doing this? I've even certain people I've been embarrassed to tell them, like, oh yeah, I do a podcast about DB Cooper. Um and not long ago, I got a call from a guy that I was going to have on the show, and he just goes into this insane rant about the JFK assassination. And I'm at work, like, standing outside while this guy is screaming at me about the JFK assassination. <laughs> and I was just standing there staring into space, wondering, like, what the fuck am I doing with my time? What am I doing with myself? <laughs> no. If I'm gonna be honest, that's usually that's usually me. Like in my person, that's me in my personal life. I'll be in there talking to my wife. I'm like, you don't think that so and so was involved? In this? <laughs> I don't even bring it up with my wife anymore because I just I feel like every time I mention DB Cooper, like she just rolls her eyes and thinks not again. Mine actually acts like she cares. <laughs> 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 she gets, she does a good job at doing that. She's like, oh, I mean, yeah. this happened 20 years before I was born. Yeah. And I'm, I've devoted a large portion of my life to it. <laughs> but you're keeping it alive. And well, I mean, it's awesome that you can come up with so much material and so many people to keep it going like you have too. Like that's amazing. And it seems like it's a one-stop shop if you want to learn everything that, about I mean, this, but you'll the, never know what happened. That's the beauty of this subject is there's so many paths you can take down it because of the m- mysterious nature of it. Do you think that we will ever know, in your honest opinion? I don't know. And I know that's a boring, lame-ass answer, but here's how I feel about it. I either want the case to be completely unsolved or I want to know exactly everything about it. My worst nightmare is that we find out 
three days from now, Eric Ballou was the hijacker, and he died in 1997. And I don't get to find out <laughs> what happened when his boots hit the ground. I really do have nightmares about that. Like, the case cannot be closed if I don't get to know everything I want to know. Or if you just get, like, one random piece of information. And what's so scary about it, too, is, like, this happened 49 going on 50 years ago. Like, if there was any evidence anywhere, like, if he did die when he hit the ground, it's gone. Like, you're not going to find a skull at this point. Like animals and everything, like it's just not going to happen. Bigfoot out there stomping around. Even if there was a skull, nobody would know. Like if it ID'd to somebody not named DB Cooper, you know what I mean? Like it, it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard. Has there ever been any like missing people reported that, around that time that might have fit the situation? The FBI checked into that extensively because maybe there's a guy who didn't show up for work Monday. Maybe there's a family who reported their dad missing uh, two weeks later. So they looked into that quite extensively. The only two real missing person stories that are really tied to Cooper are uh, Richard Lepsey or Dick Lepsey and Melvin Wilson, who both disappeared a while before the hijacking and both sort of under mysterious circumstances both gentlemen could or couldn't have committed that crime. So I'm not sure. And with missing person stories, usually there's no information on the person after they went missing. So you only have their time prior to sort of tie it to Cooper, which is, which is pretty tough. I can, I can this hear is, his brain yeah, starting to explode cracking, over it's here. It's crackling like my knuckles do when I squeeze my hands. <laughs> well, another thing that will uh, make your brain start crackling again is the money that was found. So the pretty much the only scientific or forensic work done in the case has been done in the last 15 years by a private citizen named Tom Kay. Yeah. And recently he got a hold of one of the bills that was found. And, and put it under an electron microscope and found these diatoms on them. And I'm no biologist or anything, but diatoms are these tiny little glass-like microbes in the water. So what, what, what he found on them was that these diatoms are of a specific type that only bloom in the spring and summer. So what that means is that money didn't get wet until six or eight months before it was found. What? So that, where was it before that? Was there any floods or anything in the area before that? Or Oh, I floods mean, all the time. It rains there nonstop. It might got carried from the woods or something. Out to yeah, the, or you theorized, you know, real high water. And then you have in the Columbia, you have large ships travel through. So maybe it pushed a bunch of water up. I don't know. The, the money is one of those things where the more you look into it, the crazier it is. How No one has a really good explanation for how it got there. I've heard things from it was picked up by a dredge and then deposited on the bank. I've heard a dog or some other animal picked it up and then walked far away with it and then just dropped it somewhere else. Or human intervention. The other thing is 
the money was found, oh gosh, I want to say it was like a year after the statute of limitations. So the statute of limitations on the skyjacking was about to run up uh, within a day or two. And the FBI actually issued a John Doe indictment. So John Doe was convicted of the skyjacking. They just have to figure out who John Doe was. So even if you came forward to this day, hey, I'm D.B. Cooper, there is still a chance that you could be prosecuted for it because of that indictment. That's intense. And I was going to bring up DNA, but this was the 70s. DNA just wasn't a thing back then. Well, I have an answer for that. He smoked eight cigarettes on the plane. They collected those cigarette butts to examine for fingerprint evidence. Those cigarette butts would have his DNA on them. Yeah. And then we could solve this case like Golden State Killer style. We'll find some relatives on Ancestry or 23andMe and go knock on his door. However, I've seen the FBI 302s where they instructed – Uh, the Seattle office to examine the cigarette butts for evidence. And then when they're done, throw them away. Um, The thinking there was probably, we don't want these smelly cigarette butts sitting around the office. Wow. And you know, back then in the seventies too, I mean, it was like, they'd walk into a murder scene and there'd be blood everywhere. And they'd be like, well, how are we going to figure out who did it? (laughs) Yeah. And checking for fingerprints on an airplane it's not like in the 70s they wiped all the surfaces down in between people getting on and getting off. So there was everybody's fingerprints all over every surface in there. Um, the FBI removed his the seat that he was sitting in to examine it for evidence. And I think they have like a partial palm print they're confident was his. But you're not palm printed very often. I wonder if they have any fecal matter from the seat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they were looking for that. That was probably somewhere on the ground if he didn't pull that parachute. Uh, I know every seat I I sit in, they can pull an extravagant amount of DNA from the seat. (laughs) (laughs) And that nasty moment was brought to you by... This has been been intense, and I'm going to try my best not to uh, go crazy researching this any further. (laughs) Because... That's I don't know. This, Just this leave, is leave it to the professional. I'm gonna okay. leave it to the professional. Right. I'm definitely going to start listening to your podcast every day. God, talk. if you guys have some free time in November, uh, CooperCon, the 50th anniversary, uh, is going to be in downtown Vancouver, Washington this year. And Eric Ulis has done an incredible job putting it together. Um, November 19th and 20, 19th through 21st, the Kiggins Theater. In downtown Vancouver, go to coopercon2021.com. But the speaker list there this year is incredible. I will be the master of ceremonies. But then you'll have Bill Radizak, who was co-pilot on the flight there. Eric Ulis, who was featured in the recent History Channel show on D.B. Cooper. Brian Ingram will be there, the boy who found the money. Catherine Scott, daughter of Captain Scott on the plane. Uh, Cliff Ammerman, who was the head air traffic controller who was monitoring the flight at the time. Mary Jean Fryer, former FBI. Uh, Tom Kay, aforementioned, will be there. Marla Cooper will be there. Bruce Smith, Mark Metzler, Vern Jones, Marty Andrade, uh, Brett Eichenberger, Ron and Pat Foreman, 
uh, Nikki Broughton. I mean, it's going to be awesome. The all-stars of the D.B. Cooper community. Wow. It is. Are are there drink tickets or? <laughs> yeah, the uh, it, 2020 was canceled unfortunately, but um, in 2018 and 2019 we all got together. There is a DB Cooper themed brewery in Vancouver um, called Victor 23, and we we all got together there after the event on Saturday and Sunday, and it's it was just riotous. Uh, last in 2019. I, I woke up on uh, Monday after that, and I was just so hungover. <laughs> I've never been kicked out of a full festival before. That would be <laughs> I'm sure that's on the to-do list. That's on the to-do list. I've been kicked out of several bars in my youth, but I'm, I'm getting old now. I need to catch up on that. <laughs> but this has, been, this has been eye-opening, to say the least, and I'm, my mind's been broke. Uh, this is a mystery that will go down in history with the Zodiac Killer, uh, just things that will probably never be solved. What you think? The only unsolved skyjacking in aviation history. Yeah. What do you think about it? I, I think my, my I'm not about to explode like you, but my mind is starting to swim a little bit. Of, You're going to have to go watch Catch Me If You Can again and see if you can solve I, I this? Will. I will. I'm going to have to do that. So, so. <laughs> A man whose actions took a span of how many hours? Maybe five hours. Five hours has this kind of impact on so many people, so many theories, so many. Wow. The reason that this is talk about your 15 minutes of fame and making it count. The reason this has hit me so hard is because when I was a kid, I was a fact way to a D.B. Cooper, but we didn't really have Internet and stuff and there just wasn't a lot of information and every bit of information we got was from like unsolved mysteries or just stuff on discovery channel when we finally got discovery channel and this this, and it kind of just went away because you know i couldn't do enough research but this right here talking to you has you lit a fire yeah you lit a fire i'm going to try my best not to go down this rabbit hole because I go down them frequently, and I talk about crazy shit constantly, and I don't need to add this to the repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> this one, though, it, it's pretty guilt-free because, I mean, when you think about it, no one was physically harmed. He didn't He didn't fire a shot. He didn't stab anyone. He didn't rape anyone. He threatened to blow up a plane with what may or may not have been a real bomb. Definitely not cool, but no one was hurt. And the stewardess who would have been impacted most by his behavior only said he was polite and friendly afterward. You said it's not cool. I'd go on the aisle and them say this was the coolest dude alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Made off with 200 G's and didn't get caught. <laughs> yeah, for real. Good job, man. What do you think, Tully? Do you think this will ever, anything will ever come of this? Do you think anything will ever be solved or? maybe just like the money like one detail or something will come up and it'll explode again and then we'll be right back where we're at now well we're at a half century i mean the the century marks coming up thanksgiving this year talk talk about the keeps on giving i mean that's that's what this case is and the the fbi gave up in 2016 
In 2016, they made a formal announcement that they, on their end, have closed the case. They will spend no more time or resources looking for D.B. Cooper. Um, But if you have a $20 bill or a parachute, they're willing to listen. And I really think that's really the only way this case gets solved. Um, If Cooper is still alive, he would be at least 90 years old today. Um, So he's a very old dude, but possible that he's alive. I am secretly holding out hope that, you know, his daughter knows about it. And when he passes away, she's been instructed to tell the full story. Um, if she's listening, please get a hold of me and not these clowns so you can come <laughs> with my show. We'll send her your way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but yeah, and, that's really the only way it could get solved, right? Is somebody a- has to come out with it was my grandpa and have some evidence because I've already talked to 12 people who said it was their grandpa um, and they don't have the evidence. Wouldn't that be a solid kick in the groin? If they're like, oh, yeah, I've known about for years. Here's the parachute and here's the money. Like, wouldn't that be crazy? That would be like the most insane thing that could ever happen. Like, just here it is. We've had it. Oh, yeah. I think about that. What if someone has known about this the whole time and just didn't really care that much? They didn't realize that Darren was out there thinking about this 12 and a half hours a day. <laughs> hasn't worried that there's been multiple movies and multiple books wrote and well, probably i have probably 30 books on the subject probably and saw you know, the movies that gave up and you know i can fully understand it too like if i knew my dad was involved in some sta- shady stuff i would have i would have stayed tight-lipped i wouldn't have said a thing um so i can get it uh, if that's what's happening, because you know the the most down to family is the ones that will not add on. Good for them. <laughs> so this is this is going to drive me crazy. I'll be up for the next two days straight reading. <laughs> I would recommend you read Bruce Smith's DB Cooper and the FBI. I've had Bruce on my show three or four times. Uh, many consider him the mayor of Cooperville. He is an awesome, awesome dude, and his book is the Bible on the D.B. Cooper case. All right. I've got that saved, and I am going to read that. All right. So thank you so much. I, I appreciate you coming on to the show and sharing all your, this information with us. Um, tell everybody where they can find your stuff at. The Cooper Vortex podcast. Anywhere you listen to your podcast, it's there, and it's free, and it's badass check it out and then if you are in portland seattle area go to coopercon 2021 it's going to be badass i'm so stoked for it sounds like it's going to be a blast but yeah i'd love to go out there if i win the lottery tomorrow then i'll be there <laughs> well i hope to see you there i'm pretty sure i've got the numbers they finally they're going to come in but you know us, uh, you can find us on YouTube. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, go ahead and listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts at. We're usually right there, too. You can find us at Twitter at Wearing the Folk. Uh, and you can also find the Cooper Vortex on Twitter, too. Is it at the Cooper Vortex? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> we have a Facebook and a Twitter and an Instagram. Search for the Cooper Vortex. It's us. I can't imagine there are many imitators. No, not at all. 
And, you know, thank you so much for watching us because we're watching you.